Hello, and welcome to the latest mini-episode of The Ornithology Presents Forgotten Films. I am Ben Hyten, and let me start off by saying that I'm very sorry about the recent sporadic nature of our releases. As we've mentioned several times, work for both Alex and I is more intense than it has been in a very long time. And uh, things are starting to settle down for me a little bit, and because I do all the editing... The, the patchy release is down to me. I'll, I'll take responsibility for that. Should hopefully be back on track now, starting with tonight. So to make up for it, I've got four films that I want to talk to you briefly about tonight, uh, today, this week, whatever, on this episode. been watching some documentaries of late. I love a good documentary. So I'm going to tell you about three documentaries that I've seen and a fiction film, a non-reality, non-documentary film that came out last year that I think is well worth watching. If you enjoyed Upgrade, stay tuned. So documentary-wise, I caught up with Michael Moore's uh, most recent film, Fahrenheit 11.9. Michael Moore is quite a divisive figure. Obviously, his biggest film was Fahrenheit 9.11, which he made pretty much solely to try and prevent George W. Bush getting a second term which failed, but produced a massive box office hit for Michael Moore in the process. And I think it is still the most successful documentary release of all time. Ironic, to a certain extent, because it's arguably Moore's weakest film. I think it's very loosely held together, doesn't have any sort of subtlety to it whatsoever. It's a a bit of a, a hack job. And I think Michael Moore can be a hacky political activist at times, a bit stunty, and um, and that lets down sometimes the points that he's trying to make, which are often very interesting and worth listening to. Some of the films that he's released in the years since, Sicko was good, a look at the American healthcare service, Capitalism, a love story I really liked, and Where to Invade Next I thought was an interesting look at how other countries treat things that Americans treat as completely illegal or that they have very strong reactions to. Again, you've got a bit of that stunty stuff in there where, you know, through the very nature of the title, the the thesis is if we invaded this country, we could steal their policies. And it's actually going over to those countries like Portugal and other such places to look at the policies and talk to the lawmakers that makes the film interesting. So here we are with Fahrenheit 11.9. And this is a look at how America ended up with Donald Trump in the White House. And similar to Fahrenheit 9-11, was seemingly released to try and create a democratic overhaul in the midterm elections in autumn of last year. And um, I think this is this is a really, really good film. I thought it was very even-handed. He does go after Trump, obviously, and Trump is a an easy target. He does go into some of the psychology of how voters maybe react to Trump, not just in the light of the Obama administration, but just with where we are economically and politically in the world right now. And he goes after Obama pretty hard as well on a couple of things, mainly in relation to the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, which is a mainstay of Moore's films. It's his hometown. And his first film, Roger and Me, was about the economic impact on Flint by General Motors moving out of Flint, Michigan. And at this point, it it would be 
easy to say, oh, come on, this same old record again, move on. But actually, I felt the opposite. I thought it's, it's, there's a level of auteurism to Michael Moore's obsession with Flint, Michigan. And it's kind of admirable because Flint, Michigan is a town that has been shat on by every administration since Roger and me, discarded, really, in the gutter. And it still not only doesn't have clean water, it has poisonous water. Uh, and there are some very affecting scenes where he's talking to researchers and scientists about how dangerous the water in Flint is and the lies that have been told about how safe it is and the impact that it's had on the kids who drink it. Very affecting stuff. I thought he does go after Obama for a little bit there and justifiably so. So this, this was more even-handed than you might think, certainly more so than Fahrenheit 9-11, and was, was genuinely quite moving in places. There is a little bit of that stunty hacktivism uh, where he goes and sprays, I think, a politician or a lawmaker's house with water from Flint. Eh, it didn't really work for me. It wasn't that funny. The guy wasn't even home, so it didn't really make much of a point. And I just think that's the stuff that Moore needs to grow out of a little bit, because he is a pretty good filmmaker. And when he's on point, like he is here, he's a worthwhile voice in the canon of political filmmaking. So take with a pinch of salt. If you don't like Michael Moore, obviously don't watch it. But if you've been turned off by some of his more hacky stuff since Bowling for Columbine, I think this is, uh, you know, a return to form, so to speak. It's a proper political documentary, and it's a very good one. Sticking with politics and lawmakers, I also watched the recently Oscar-nominated documentary RBG about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was, I believe, the second woman to sit on the Supreme Court in America. And this is a look back at the entire course of her career and how she broke the mould somewhat. With up-to-date interviews with her, she's now 84 and she's still sitting on the Supreme Court. For how much longer, we don't know. I think the timing of this is or was, quite interesting in relation to the Brett Kavanaugh appointment, the most recent appointment to the Supreme Court and Trump's first. And if nothing else, this film is a document and a testament to the way that lawmakers and politicians can have radically different beliefs, but reach across the aisle with respect for one another, and even form bonds of friendship with one another. If I had to use one word to describe Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it would be integrity. And it irks me a little bit, having seen this, that we talk about her in terms of how strong and resilient she is, which obviously she is. But one of the things that really comes through in this documentary is how warm and funny and loving she is. And while she may be a feminist icon, feminism is not her stock in trade. Equality is. And there are some very interesting examples in this film of how standing up for men's rights for the sake of equality is just as important as standing up for women's or for any group that may have systematically been sidelined. And I suspect if this had been a film about a man who'd done the things that Ginsburg has done, we would talk about him as being, you know, warm and charming and funny and for some reason, because it's so rare that someone has such an incredible career and an incredible impact on such a large system as the American legal system, as Ginsburg has, they're held up as something totemistic. 
she's a, she is an extraordinary woman, and I I've, I found the stories about her and her husband and how much he supported her throughout her career and life um, really moving. And again, a side of her that that maybe a lot of people wouldn't know. So in terms of getting a history of the person and a sense of their character, it's a very solid film. There is a fictional accounting of a certain part of Ginsburg's life that's out at the moment called On the Basis of Sex, which I haven't seen, but apparently it's a little bit dry. I found this was very charming, very funny, insightful into an extraordinary career, but didn't have anything majorly to say beyond that, other than the idea of integrity above all things, you know, the letter of the law above all things, and she's not someone who would throw her political or legal opponents in the dirt because it doesn't doesn't serve anyone really other than the newspapers so it's worth a watch but um i'll probably wait for it to come up on one of your streaming services the documentary that i watched this last weekend and my bigger recommendation even though it's probably the slighter of the three films that i'm discussing here is a film called King Cohen. Now, on the 1982 episode of Forgotten Films, we talked about um, a Larry Cohen film briefly that was in contention called Cue the Winged Serpent. And King Cohen is a, a look back on the entire career of Larry Cohen. It's one of those films where you have a brief interview with someone that was in the film or related to the film, some clips from said film, and then you move forward to the next one chronologically. So there's no real bells and whistles to this, but Larry Cohen is a, is a figure very similar to Roger Corman, who has carved out a very specific niche in high-quality trash or trashily made good scripts, depending on how you want to look at it. Quite a good writer. Um, one of his films from more recent years was Phone Booth. I know that's going back 15, 16 years now, but that's a Larry Cohen script. So you can see he likes a concept. He likes a bottle episode. Uh, he's He was the king of the B-movie high concept. Uh, he's done films like Black Caesar, which kicked off the black exploitation movement. Original Gangsters in the late 90s, which reunited Fred Williamson, uh, Pam Greer, and a couple of other people. And... Uh, I have to say, there are sequences in this film that have me almost crying laughing. There is a particular sequence where Larry Cohen is describing uh, how they shot a particular scene, I believe it was in Black Caesar, of Fred Williamson jumping out of a car. And it's intercut with Fred Williamson telling his side of the story. And it's a perfect bit of comedy timing and delivery. And there's a few things like that. Fred Williamson, by the way, who's he's been in things like From Dust Till Dawn. He's a big dude, looks like an American footballer, smokes cigars, has a mustache, looks great. He must be 70, at least. He looks really great. Anyway, Cohen himself, very charming, very self-effacing, obsessed with the golden period of Hollywood, especially the actors, and once they'd fallen out of favour, would quite often pull them into his films very late in their career, so that he could say he had an Oscar winner or or something like that from an actor who was no longer getting jobs. And and you know, there's sort of this balance of yes, he's exploiting their fame a little bit, also trying to rejuvenate their careers. But you get the sense from this film that it was really just because he loved those guys and would never pass up an opportunity to work with 
or talk about them. And very few people have anything bad to say about Larry Cohen in this film. He seems to be a really stand-up guy, a real hard worker. I love films like this. Um, if you if you saw Best Worst Movie or Jodorowsky's June or Lost Souls, uh, the film about the ill-fated Dr. Moreau movie, any of those docu- or American movie even, which is one of my favorites, uh, any of those documentaries about people on the sidelines trying to get films done who are a little bit kooky. This is this is fine. This is a really solid addition to that canon. I really enjoyed it. And if you're into those B-movies of the 70s and 80s, you may well dig out some recommendations from this film. I did. And there's a few Larry Cohen films I'm going to go back and watch now. So let's summarize those. Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 11.9. Four stars. RBG, I go three and a half. Uh, King Cohen, four stars again. But on the on the understanding that that is to my tastes, there is nothing spectacular about this documentary at all. There's nothing wrong with it either. But it was just, it really tickled my sweet spot. Finally, before I go... I watched the J.J. Abrams produced Overlord this last weekend, which I think came out last autumn. And this had an interesting journey to to my eyeballs, at least, because this is a film set in World War II, and it has a slightly occult or supernatural element to it. So it's a mesh of action and horror, let's put it that way. And when it was first, I can't remember if it was before the trailer out or around the time the trailer came out, this was supposed to be the latest entry in the Cloverfield franchise. And that was before Cloverfield Paradox dropped on Super Bowl night 2018. Now, the first Cloverfield film, I loved when it came out. And I watched it again a couple of years ago. Totally holds up for me. It's probably one of the finest found footage films. Yeah, okay, some of the characters are annoying. Some of the dialogue's a bit hokey. But it works within its concept really well. There's some stellar effects work in it for the time. And I launched the career of Matt Reeves, who's gone on to do a couple of the um, Planet of the Apes movies, which are great. Matt Reeves is a really, really great director. Ten Cloverfield Lane, I absolutely loved. And I know Alex does as well. And that fully includes the last 10 minutes. I've heard loads of people say, oh, it was really great until the last 10 minutes or 20 minutes, whatever. Disagree. It was really great up until then. It was even greater for those final 20 minutes. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is absolutely one of my favourites. And John Goodman, likewise, just a a phenomenal actor who time and time again delivers. And Ten Cloverfield Lane is some of his best work. Incidentally, if you haven't spotted the final surprise in Ten Cloverfield Lane, I'm not going to spoil it, but uh, just before the screen fades to black, take a look at the lightning. And uh, you might be in for a little surprise there. Yeah. So, first two films in this odd franchise. Really great. Love them. Then Cloverfield Paradox drops. I thought it was shit. It had no right being a part of the Cloverfield franchise. It felt very tacked on in that sense. I think it was originally called The God Particle. And it's been refitted to, to be a Cloverfield film. There are a couple of sequences in it that are fine. There's a decent cast. The script is abysmal. And I just really did not enjoy that film at all. And I think that kind of has killed the Cloverfield franchise. So, if you haven't seen Overlord, I'll just say it is really good. 
I really enjoyed it. It's exciting, it's gory, very violent. In fact, it has much higher production values than I would have thought. If you don't want to know how this fits into the Cloverfield franchise, then probably go now. I'm not going to go into spoilers, but I'm going to spoil that. Okay? Alright? I'm giving you time to fumble around with your device. Now I'm going. I'm going now. I'm going to start. So, this film is related to the Cloverfield franchise in exactly fuck-all ways. And I don't know if that is a is a refitting post the sort of catastrophe of Cloverfield Paradox. Or they just never bother to make it fit in, or it fits a prequel to a prequel, let's say. But there's certainly no evidence in the film that this is directly linked to either of the Cloverfield films. There's no aliens, there's no monsters. I could see how a bridging film could connect the two, but this is very standalone. This is men on a mission, starting in D-Day, with a sequence that is just phenomenal. Excellent opening sequence with top-notch effects work. We're in a plane, going over the ocean. There's hundreds of US aircraft carriers and planes flying to Europe for D-Day. It's as good as any shot you would see in Saving Private Ryan or the Pacific in terms of production value. It's also a really gripping sequence and a hell of a way to get you into the film. So there's a big opening and we end up with a small group of men who are in uh, German-occupied France, I suppose, heading towards something that looks very much like a castle to knock out a communications array before D-Day. So this is the way that they're going to assist with D-Day. Now, I already mentioned that there is a horror element. The horror element doesn't become fully clear until about an hour into this film. So it is a balls-to-the-wall, men-on-a-mission, dirty-dozen-style, dirty-half-dozen, let's say, World War II action movie, with a little bit of that really sinister stuff from, say, the captain from Pan's Labyrinth. There's a there's a particularly evil character in this, played by Pilu Azbek, who played Euron Greyjoy in Game of Thrones, uh, and he was in the Ghost in the Shell movie. He's the big bad Nazi in this, and he's really good. I really liked him. Um, doesn't overplay it to begin with, and then later in the film has a reason to go full evil, which I won't give away here. And so that totally worked for me. There's also an actress called Matilda Olivier. She's also excellent. Um, Not a damsel in distress, but a French woman whose house these American soldiers end up in. And uh, she wants to help. She has some really strong, solid moments. Uh, But the two leads in this are Wyatt Russell, Kurt Russell's son, uh, from such things as 22 Jump Street and uh, a guy called who I've never seen before I don't know if he's Jovan or Jovan Adepo they're both excellent White Russell is getting to play the kind of part that Kurt Russell would have played for John Carpenter in the late 70s, early 80s there are some moments where you can really see that he's Kurt Russell's son very grizzled, very sort of McCready, Snake Plissken kind of character um, and Jovan Adepo is our hero, albeit reluctant. What I find really curious about this, really great effects work throughout, really good uh, creature designs and digital effects, some phenomenal gore effects. It's really well shot. It's exciting. There is a, a one-shot take in the in the final third that I didn't even realize until it ended was a wanna, and I much prefer that than someone flashing their great photography in your face. Hello, The Revenant. 
what I'm really surprised that I had not heard about this film is that while it has fuck all to do with Cloverfield, this is basically a setup for a Wolfenstein film. As in soldiers, World War II, Nazis messing around with occult mutations and super soldier serums, and the two clash. That's what this movie is. Overlord is Wolfenstein. And they could fully go in that direction if they did another one. And they could do another one. And I would totally watch another one. I love this film. Totally blew my expectations out of the water. I expected it to be much more like Iron Sky or Dead Snow. One of those corny, here's something supernatural. Here's something from the horror realm. But it's a Nazi. There is some of that. But this is pretty much played straight. I I don't know what else to say. The, The gore really works. The action is exciting. There's great production values, good actors, decent script. There are some really tense moments. I was wholly satisfied by this film. Four and a half stars. If you liked Upgrade, which was the film earlier on in the year that totally exceeded my expectations, I think you'll get a kick out of this. Bear in mind, this is an exceedingly violent film. Not in a massively upsetting way. Pilo Azbek does have something that happens to his face that I couldn't stop looking at. I just thought that is such a great effect used to great effect. I I really don't have any problems with this film whatsoever. I'm going to be watching this a lot over the next few years and I really hope they get to do another one. The final thing I'll say about it is produced by J.J. Abrams but directed by someone called Julius Avery. Now I'd never heard of him before. He fucking knocked this out of the park. So I'm going to be watching that guy's career very closely. He could be the next Justin Lin, who did the best Fast and Furious movies. He could be the next David Leitch, who did uh, John Wick, Atomic Blonde, Deadpool 2. You know, these really technically adept action directors who, when they get their hands on a good script or good material, just do the best they can with it. Next up for Julius Avery is supposedly Flash Gordon. and. I can see that. I, I, I could get excited about that. Yeah. Overlord is my big recommendation of the week. Give it a shot. It's a satisfying action film. It's a satisfying horror film. And there's some really great technical stuff in it. Don't let it become a forgotten film. Get on it. Overlord. That's all I've got to say to you. Thank you for sending in all your recommendations and things for the Forgotten Films. Our our cup floweth over, if that's how the saying goes, for 1988, to the extent that we can't whittle it down beyond four films, so we may end up doing two episodes on 1988 alone. We're going to start needing your 90s recommendations, though, so send them in, send them in, send them in. Theornithology at gmail.com. Any comments, any questions you want, fuck, marry, kill, whatever you want, send it in. And... Share. Share away. Get on Facebook and share our links. We need the listenership to keep going up. If people stop listening, we'll stop making it. It's as simple as that. Okay, that's all I've got to say. I might go and watch Overlord again. I'm so jazzed about that film. Okay, that's that's it. That's all I've got to say. Thanks for listening. uh, We'll be back soon with 1986, and that's going to be a good one. So join us for that. Until then, goodbye and thank you.